0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads.
1: I remember I used to always tell Raheem that when, when I couldn't see, when I, when I was incarcerated, I, I couldn't see the outside world at all all I could do is hear it from the phone conversation. And it felt like my sense of hearing would heighten because I could tell what room she was in based upon the the kind of air I hear. I could tell when she's in the car. I could tell when she's outside, when she's walking. I could tell by her breath that she's doing something different. And and I still have that extra sense, like the heightened sense of hearing. So now that we're, we're sheltering in place, everyone is forced to pick up Uh, Another sense or enhance what other senses they
0: have. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. In many communities in the country right now, people are having to decide how close they feel comfortable being with people they live near as rules keeping us apart have started to shift. But some people have not had the option of distance including the 2.3 million people in America's jails and prisons. And coronavirus is inside those walls with them. More than 46,000 inmates have tested positive for coronavirus, and at least 548 have died from it, according to the Marshall Project and the Associated Press.
1: They say that, you know, listen, my bump is three feet away from someone else's bump. And, and you know, I'm afraid I can't social distance in a time like this. You know, I need help.
0: That's Lawrence Bartley. He's been on the show several times before, starting in 2014, when I interviewed him at Sing Sing Prison in Ossiny, New York. In 2018, he was released on parole after 27 years. Lawrence now works for the Marshall Project, a news organization that covers criminal justice. He started a print publication for them called News Inside, whose readers are incarcerated people around the country.
1: I get the most mail out of everyone. Oh, really? You know, they, <laughs> absolutely. Because huh, they
0: know you know. That's interesting. Huh.
1: Exactly. They yeah. know I know, and they let, us, they let us tell me that they know I know. And just saying it to me, they know it's not falling on, on deaf ears.
0: Lawrence is now working from home. But prior to the pandemic, he commuted to the office in New York City from Connecticut, where he lives now with his wife, Ronin, and their two boys. They bought a house there last year.
1: It's the kind of place that Ronin and I have always wanted, with uh, a a decent sized backyard, and front yard, and space between ourselves and the neighbors, uh, so the kids can run, play, ride their bikes. Uh, We've been here for about nine months. Uh Uh, The wife and I are blessed to be working remotely. And my wife is a teacher and she can homeschool the kids without without it her uh, out of her comfort zone.
0: Um, I want to ask you about an essay you wrote about this time of isolation and quarantine, about how your time in prison prepared you for this. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, when was that? When in the process of everything shutting down and you beginning to shelter in place with your family, when did you have that first sense of oh, this feels familiar?
1: During the initial two weeks I was adjusting so I didn't I didn't really think about my own personal space and how it made me feel and how it was reminiscent of of being incarcerated until that first two weeks kind of went by. Mm-hmm. But then, as we began to settle in a bit, and I started realizing I couldn't go any, anywhere, I, I remember looking through my window and I would see the occasional car pass by, and um it reminded me of being on keep lock, which is being locked in in a cell twenty three hours a day, but you would have your personal property, like your underwear, your clothing, your radio, you had your books. You had those things, but you couldn't go out. And I would look out my window and hear, and I would have that feeling like, wow, there's so many places. I can't go.
0: What were the circumstances? When would you be on keep lock?
1: Well, I remember one time in particular, I was, uh, I, um. I used to, you know, being incarcerated, you could make as little as 10 cents an hour in in New York State. You know, I had a family that would send me money now, now again, but I didn't like to be a burden on them. Nonetheless, they had bills to pay. Now, I could purchase like seasoning, you know, it it costs a a couple of, maybe 60 or something cents. But if someone in the mess hall, black market, would, would steal some seasoning and they would sell it to me in bulk at a cheaper cost, so that's what I did. I, I purchased it. And so I I had it in my cell. I would take a little bit out. I would use it to flavor my food and my food would taste pretty decent. And um, until one day, I uh, opened the search my cell and he, and he found the seasoning. Seasoning. And, uh, he,
0: was it like salt and pepper yeah. or or what kind of seasoning this was
1: it? This was garlic powder. Oh This is yeah. garlic powder. And, and when he found it, I mean, he treated me like it was a, big drug bus. i was like, come on, man. I'm seasoning my food. But he looked at me like <laughs> <laughs> he looked at me like I had three heads. Like, you mean seasoning your food. Get on the wall. What are you doing? <laughs> like, she's going crazy. I'm like, so I guess keep locked with myself. I'm like, oh, man. So um, then I had to deal with those feelings of, of, of being isolated, you know, and and when you first time being keep locked, it, it it begins to to weigh on your, your mental health and you, you can't see anybody, touch anybody, you can't go out and and that w- was heavy on me and, and it and it really hurt. And I learned how to survive and adapt under those conditions. So these conditions seemed like not much to me.
0: So tell me how you learned to adapt. Like what were the things that you learned you had to do? When you were physically isolated, in order to move through those feelings of anxiety.
1: One one thing I would mention, like um, like right now, like sometimes I have meetings I have meetings on Zoom, maybe an interview or something. Um, behalf for the Marshall project, I would do it. People would have to see me, and I'm cutting my hair every day with clippers. I'm cutting it, and, you know, I make sure I look presentable on my Zoom meetings, whatever presentation I have to give. You know, I'm getting tired putting on a um. A shirt, a no, uh, button-down shirt, so I'm looking presentable. And it reminds me of I, I learned how to do all these things. Like when I was in in, in solitary confinement, when you don't have anything, you don't have any, you don't have any um, yeah, hygiene products. You only have two pairs and shirt and pants that they give you. So it was really a headache and it's super stressful. You know, at this time I had long hair, and and for for black americans like we like to braid our hair sometimes we braid our hair in cornrows Mm -hmm. you know to look presentable and when ronnie would come visit me on the weekends i I like to i had long hair i didn't braid it so so what i did was i would um i would i had to learn how to braid my own hair which is super difficult and usually you know we would put like like hair grease in order to make our hair look 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 nice and and, and, you know, so it won't look dry while you braid your hair. I didn't have hair grease, but I had butter. Mm. I had little pieces of butter. So I would use butter to, to put it in my hair. And I smelled like Jiffy Pop popcorn every time <laughs> I went on a visit. <laughs> yeah, would say your hair looks nice, but you smell like popcorn. But, uh, no.
0: <laughs> so I hear you saying like doing your hair when you were... When you were alone, it both, like, gave you something to do and to focus on and also was a way for you to take care of yourself so you didn't feel like you were, right. like, falling apart
1: um, while you were Absolutely. on your own. Huh. Yeah, it's another skill, you know, gaining another skill.
0: You know, something that I wonder that if it feels unfamiliar to you, like, when you were dealing with isolation before, it was you. It was you. And and you had this, this time to go inward and to work on how you managed your thoughts and took care of yourself. I mean, now you're in a household with your wife, with your two boys who want your attention. Um, I know as a parent right now with kids at home trying to work, like, you don't have a lot of time to go inward. And I wonder if that feels really different. Like, do you know how to take care of yourself when it's when it's isolation, but you, you are constantly distracted by other people?
1: Well, this is a, a, a dream come true. I mean yeah. <laughs> I remember when I used to be in solitary. I used to I used to fantasize about like having my family with me. You know, I I many times throughout the week I find myself looking at my family and saying, How thankful I am mm-hmm. that they are here with me.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: this is like I, I get a chance to know them better. I I'm watching my six year old grow, my um my my twelve year old, he he's doing his music now. He's mm. playing music, writing music, composing music. I'm watching him grow as an artist. You know, I'm I'm, I'm here with Raneen and you know, so I have my mental health is is super stable. It's being fed with love every day and and I'm growing myself in that way because I've been deprived of it for twenty seven years.
0: Mm. I wonder, like, have you been either through work or just by reaching out in your personal time, have you been in touch with inmates since Sing Sing right now? And and what are you hearing from them about how they're experiencing the pandemic?
1: Well, yeah, I get letters all the time. The letters are are, are desperate, and you know, I would get letters before, but these letters are more frantic. Hmm. You don't have to. They don't have to um, present themselves because I understand a lot of things they don't have to explain. And a lot of them, may say things like, yo, listen, you know, you know they don't care about us. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to leave us to die. You know, I, I got to get out of here, man. I got a daughter I got to get to. My granddaughter was just born. I'm 60 years old. I got hypertension. You know, can I get out of here, man? All I got is a drug crime. You know, drugs mess me up. But I've been off of drugs for 16 years. Can I have a chance to live? I mean, you know, what's going to be happening? I mean, You know, it's just, it's crazy. You know, some of them say things like, um, you, know, you know, there's an order for officers to wear masks. But some officers aren't wearing masks. They're going to give it to us. So, I mean, what's going on, man?
0: I'm struck by that word frantic that you said. They're, the letters you're getting are more frantic than you're used to.
1: Especially when you get it from someone that you you're you knew for years and that person is always in control. Hmm. But to, to hear, like, a frantic letter or a call from his family member or email from his grandmother, it's just so desperate. And, and I feel sad that I can't help people like I wish I could.
0: Coming up, a story from one of the people who reached out to Lawrence, a woman worried about her husband's safety in Sing Sing.
2: I feel like this is a death sentence for him. I feel like, what if he dies in there? We've waited so long and have gone through so much.
0: Many of our colleagues here at WNYC have been doing some excellent reporting in the last few months about prisons in America during this pandemic. The podcasts, The United States of Anxiety, and The New Yorker Radio Hour have worked on a few episodes together about early releases from jails and prisons because of COVID-19, including about how some people are being let out without much reentry assistance. Like a man named Jermaine, who was recently released from a jail in Cleveland. He has schizoaffective disorder.
1: I'm supposed to go to the treatment center, but they just let me out. They just scrapped all that, and just it was just me.
0: The United States of Anxiety also looked at COVID-19 in ICE detention centers in New York and New Jersey. We have links to that reporting in our show notes. And there's one more podcast I think you should check out if you haven't, Ear Hustle from Radiotopia which is stories all about people in prison and on the outside post-incarceration. Ear Hustle just wrapped their fifth season, which was produced almost entirely during Shelter-in-Place, and it's phenomenal. I especially recommend the episode called Hold That Space, about four women and relationships with men in prison. On our next episode, the first of our collaboration with the podcast Love & Radio, about touch and what you've been missing during this time of isolation.
1: Good God, the other day at CVS, the cashier, their finger brushed my hand and I thought I was going to pass out.
0: This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Limonata Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Lawrence Bartley spent his last years in prison at Sing Sing, where, as of last weekend, 43 people have tested positive for coronavirus, and four people have died. Lawrence connected me with a woman we're calling Dana, who lives in Queens, New York. Her husband is currently at Sing Sing. We're calling him John and he's been incarcerated for more than 18 years. He was convicted of burglary in the second degree and robbery in the third degree and won't be eligible for parole for another seven years. Since Sing Sing is closed to visitors, Dana told me she and John talk on the phone almost every day. During one of their calls back in late March, John told Dana that he
2: wasn't feeling well. He, he said he was feverish and he was tired That the headaches were, you know, like he never had a headache like this before. Um, At night, he would feel worse. During the day, he will feel a little better. And this is still going on. He doesn't have a fever anymore. But um, he still feels ill. He knows something is wrong. But he can't really tell if it's the coronavirus. So he feels like it is because of the symptoms that he is having. Yeah. He gasps when he talks. He, I feel like he's winded and he, he runs out of air and then he takes a breath. And I'm like, were you rushing? And he goes, N- no, I'm here. I've been waiting for the phone. He has not been tested. No, he has not been tested. Is
0: that alarming to you?
2: It is because he's sick for such a long time. And it's scary. After putting in all this time, my husband is can have the coronavirus and it could be life-threatening and there's no medical attention.
0: Do you have someone at the prison that you can call or talk to that's not your husband to understand what's happening there?
2: Uh, no, not really. When, um, when I have reached out to the facility, They usually ask for the inmate's number, ID number, and that's all they're concerned about. Who are you talking about instead of trying to give information of what is happening at the prison? And I try never to identify my husband because there's retaliation when a phone call doesn't go right or you want too much information. Um... So I try to be vague and general.
0: So you're afraid to express specific concern about your husband because you're afraid then that he will he'll face some kind of consequence inside.
2: Absolutely.
0: How do you know to be afraid of that?
2: Um, in the past, when I have called, and I did freely give my husband's ID, then he couldn't get on the phone. Um, he was running into problems. Even when I go there to visit, I walk in with absolutely hardly any jewelry, just my wedding bands. Um, I follow the rules to the T, because if you're flagged for anything um, other than following the rules, they, the process is delayed. Um they kind of bully you around if you, you are too loud, if you are too noticed, if you are, you know, I, I kind of wear the same outfit all the time because I know that there is no buttons that ring. I know that uh, the shirt is not revealing and it's best, it's best to do it that way because it's a smoother process when your head is down. Before
0: coronavirus, how often would you see each other?
2: I would go every week or every other week because I work. So I would go on the days that I could visit him. Mm-hmm. When did those visits stop? They stopped in late February.
0: Mm. Is this the longest you've gone without seeing him in 18
2: and a half years? Absolutely. But now uh, it's just words, 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 words. Um, so I try to express as much as I can to him, good, positive, everything is going to be okay kind of wording. And um, even though we don't know, we, we are there for each other and we try to support each other and try to lift. I try to lift him up and... Um, Do the best I can that way. Yeah. He served so much time for the crime. And it was because he had no representation. We have no money. And it's just the anxiety level, Anna, that I've reached has me physically ill Mm -hmm. because I don't know if he's really okay. How
0: do you get phone calls from John? Do you know when they're coming or do you just hold your phone close because it could be at any moment?
2: Oh, I don't let go of my phone. It could be at any moment. There's no set time. There are no rules. There are no... the set times are actually in the morning, afternoon and evening those are when they are allowed to call but anywhere in those three times of the day i don't know when he's going to call
0: i see mm-hmm.
2: so I-, I live for i live with my phone everywhere i go have you talked yet today no not today not yet what did you talk about yesterday Um, We talked about how it was raining, and there was sort of a storm, and we spoke about TV shows and the kids. We spoke about what he's eaten. Um, This is our daily conversations, just what has gone on the day before, what's coming, how I'm working still from home. He tells me to try to be careful to exercise as much as I could, to stay active even inside. Um, He asked me, you know, what I cook and things of that sort. Mm. Just we try to be as normal as possible.
0: I see, I see. And what'd you tell him you were cooking?
2: Um, I made chicken and rice and beans. Mm. And I, I try to diffuse the the meal conversation Anna because he loves to eat <laughs> <laughs> and he loves my cooking <laughs> so I feel sad because if I say something that's too yummy that sounds too good I feel like he he's wishing and wanting to have that yeah and it makes me sad
0: yeah you said you've noticed some physical some physical anxiety coming up what have you noticed and how you're you're carrying this
2: worry I feel like a weight in my chest and sometimes I think well maybe I have the coronavirus but I am not sick I don't have a fever and I'm not symptomatic so I don't think I have the coronavirus I've been in place for a long time if I've been out of my house five times for food since March 25th, was, which was the last time I worked, um, I had, hardly have been out of the house. And um, I don't feel like I'm, I have the coronavirus, but I do feel a weight on my chest. I can't sleep. And it's a combination of everything that's going on around us and a combination of worrying about John, who did feel sick and who hasn't had a lot of help there. Yeah. So the anxiety level is real.
0: Mhm.
2: And Dana, I'm wondering, do
0: you have any do you have any friends who also have incarcerated spouses? Do you have anybody to talk to about what this is like?
2: No, I don't.
0: That's a lot for you to hold all by yourself.
2: It is. It is, and I try not to talk too much here at home. My daughter is a college student who is studying for pharmacy, and she's very busy, and her work is very intense, very hard. It's not an easy career, so I try not to worry her or his mother. She's sick and old, Um, so I, I take in a lot. You have to be strong.
0: What are you going to do this afternoon?
2: Work. I still have to work. <laughs> <laughs> and wait for his call. Yeah. Wait for John to call and and work.
0: That's a woman we're calling Dana in Queens, New York. Since we talked, she started back at the office where she works. Her husband still has not been tested for coronavirus, and she still doesn't know when she'll be able to visit him again. There's a link in our show notes to Lawrence Bartley's essay, "How 27 Years in Prison Prepared Me for Coronavirus," along with links to my previous interviews with him and his wife, Renine. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm usually based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Boutine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to Joanna Goldman in Montreal, who's a sustaining member of Death Sex and Money. Join Joanna to support what we do here at DeathSexMoney.org slash donate.